Wonderful, uh, wonderful singing. Uh, just being able to pray and hear God's word read and to sing of uh, God's marvelous grace and kindness is a, is a blessing, beloved. And now we have the opportunity to look in a bit more in depth uh, into a particular passage. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John in John chapter 18. <coughs> John chapter 18. Once you've found your way there, I'd like to invite you to pray with me to ask for the Lord's blessing. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, uh, as we have mentioned this morning already, uh, to be able to come together and to hear your word uh, read, to sing hymns of praise to you, and to hear the proclamation of your word as we exalt Christ our Savior and your Son. Lord, we cherish the word of God that you have given to us. Uh, we know that it is a rock and it will never be shaken. It will never disappear. It is able to uh, crush the enemies of the gospel. And at the same time, it is your word that is able to discern even the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and to pierce both joint uh, bone and marrow. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us uh, humble hearts this morning as we uh, seek to come before your, you and your word, and that you would grant to us uh, the blessing of your Holy Spirit, that he would guide and direct us and apply your word to our hearts, that, that we might not leave this place unchanged, but that we might leave more and more transformed into the image of your beloved Son. Uh, Lord, your word is given to us for that purpose, and so we pray that you would help us as we listen attentively, Father. I pray that you would grant to me grace as I seek to convey your word, that you would be with my lips and my tongue, Father, that you would protect me from speaking falsehood or error, and you would protect your people from hearing that, Father. Uh, we ask for your grace as we look at your word, as as we look at this time of our Lord and Savior's passion, it's a very weighty time, and it was a very weighty thing that he did for us. And so help us to look at it soberly and humbly. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So when we started considering the Gospel of John, and now we've made our way to John 18, we've arrived at a place in the Gospel where John's gospel took a, a final turn, if you will, to the cross. Um, it's, it's a turn that all of the gospel writers work toward. Like all of the gospel writers have to and do eventually come to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And really from the opening pages of the scripture, even in the Old Testament, the account of Christ's suffering has been you might say like the sun in the horizon of God's redemptive plan. It's, it's always been out there in the horizon. And really, it's been pulling all of human history from the very beginning, from Genesis 3.15. It's been pulling all of human history uh, toward its kind of irresistible force according to God's perfect will and, and his plan. And so just as the setting of the sun... In the West, here we know this in San Diego, you see the sun setting in the West. 
it leads you, if you were to go seven miles or even less here, three or four miles that way and follow the setting sun, it would lead you to, those, to the Pacific Ocean, uh, the refreshing and the cool waters of the uh, Pacific Ocean. And, and these chapters in that way uh, serve to make known to us uh, the healing balm of the nations, the gospel. Um, we, we must go through chapters 8 to 19, as weighty as they are, because without chapters eight to 19, 18 to 19, uh, there, is no, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. It, it's kind of ironic in a way, but there is no good news without the horrific news of chapters 18 to 19. In fact, if you remove chapters 18 to 19 from the gospel, if you remove chapters 18 to 19 from human history and you try to minimize it, which a lot of people do, a lot of people will minimize these chapters by looking at Jesus and Jesus' life and even his suffering and death as, as merely a moral example to be followed uh, or as making the life and the suffering even of Jesus as uh, merely Jesus being a martyr for dying for what is right. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you think that. Maybe you think Jesus really at the end of the day is just a good moral example and his life is something that directs me to heaven by following Jesus. And if I follow Jesus and if I'm willing to die for the truth like Jesus and to stand for things that are good like Jesus and I wear my what would Jesus do bracelet and I tr seek to live my life like that, that then I will get to heaven to be with Jesus. That's not the gospel. Uh, that's not what chapters 18 to 19 of the gospel of John is about. If you remove these chapters and don't understand them rightly, then instead of getting to the Pacific Ocean with the cool, refreshing waters of the Pacific, the, the gospel, you end, up, you end up arriving at the Salton Sea, <laughs> right? I don't know how many of you have been to the Salton Sea, but it is not a place you want to be. It's warm, stagnant, salty, just a, uh, a not a very pleasant place. And, and the Salton Sea is not able to refresh or uh, quench, no matter how thirsty and weary you are, you cannot be sustained by that kind of water. You need the living water of the gospel. So we have to not forget, as we go into chapters 18 to 19, we must not forget that the gospel that we enjoy came with a great cost to Jesus. We have good news, but that good news was paid for by Jesus. Before we can even begin to step foot on the shores of God's grace and his glory, Jesus had to suffer alone in our place. 
He had to suffer alone in a way that we will never, ever be able to comprehend and thankfully will never have to endure. All of this points to the fact that Jesus Christ is our substitute. Jesus is our substitute in that he stands in our place to take our sin upon himself. And this is what John 18 to 19 is about. And so when you're reading the Gospel of John, or any of the Gospels, but the Gospel of John, because that's what we've been going through, when you, when you look at John 1 to 17, I think it's safe to say that we like the Jesus of John 1 to 17. And I think it's safe to say that we would be happy to jump straight to John 20. We like that Jesus of John 1 to 17 because Jesus of John 1 to 17 is a Jesus that in some way we can manage. Jesus of John 1 to 17 fits many of our desires and longings, doesn't he, as you've gone through it? He's a divine Jesus. He's a triumphant Jesus. He's a revolutionary Jesus. He's a Jesus that when he is confronted by his enemies, he doesn't recoil at their challenge. And he's a Jesus that doesn't show fear before the religious leaders and those that are powerful in his day and age. We like that Jesus, don't we? He's not a respecter of persons. We like that Jesus because he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. We can come to a Jesus like that. And we want glory like that. But the fact is that when we come to see that the victory that Jesus wins for us and the glory that he secures for us was not won through the means of John 1 to 17, but is actually through the means of suffering and dying in our place and of bearing our sin and shame and guilt and punishment. Then suddenly we stumble at the cross of Christ. And why? The reason that we stumble is because that thought makes us uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable to think that Jesus had to pay all of our sin and, and be the substitute in our place when he did not deserve it. That's why people stumble at the cross. There's nothing more humbling than the fact that we are otherwise completely helpless on our own and we are in need of a Savior to act on our behalf. The reason that people stumble at the cross is because there is no place for pride and self-reliance at the cross. We struggle to let go of our own self-reliance and our own means 
because, our fallen, because of our fallen nature. In fact, this is the very thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with in the garden, and they were deceived by Satan. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And they just couldn't get away from that temptation, and so they gave into it. And so it troubles us. It troubles us that Jesus is going to come and die in our place because of what we deserved. It's no place for pride. And you know what? We're no different than Peter in that sense. You see, we struggle with it, with humbling ourselves before God, just as Peter struggled. Peter and the disciples, do you think they loved Jesus of John 1 to 17? You better believe it. They loved Jesus when they were with him. And they struggled with his teaching about his coming betrayal. They struggled with Jesus' teaching that he said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Jesus also taught them, and they struggled with this, that Jesus said, you all will be scattered and I will be left alone. Do you remember we went through that? Jesus says, I'm going to be left alone, and they, they struggled with it. He told them he would be arrested, he would be betrayed. He told them that he would go to the cross and he would die and he would suffer alone. And the thing is, is that is not how they imagined the kingdom of God to come. They didn't imagine that the Messiah would come and the kingdom would come and the way that the Messiah would conquer Satan and conquer the world and establish his reign was actually by coming into the world to go and die and be crucified on a cross. And so Jesus, we saw in chapters 13 to 17, he was preparing his disciples for this because he knew that they were troubled by this thought. He says in verse, chapter 14, verse 1, that he knows, he says, I know sorrow has filled your hearts. He says, I know that you cannot understand everything that I have set out to do for you right now. But he tells them, he says, take heart, because through the cross, I, you will have peace through me, and through the cross, I will overcome the world and so all of this is going just as God planned. And so we saw that turn to the cross last week in verses 1 to 11. Last week we saw, as Jesus goes down that road, that he was indeed, just like he said, he was betrayed by Judas. Judas, the one who had spent three years with the Lord, like we talked about last week, under his ministry, under his care, under his love, seeing his miracles, hearing the gospel, even preaching the gospel, this close, this one close among Jesus' disciples betrayed him, turned against him, just as Jesus said, and then Jesus was arrested by Jewish and Roman soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And then the passage ends 
with Peter drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of a servant of the high priest. Remember, shows his lack of understanding of what Jesus came to do. He's resisting it. He's resisting Jesus going to the cross. And so this elicited an admonishment of Peter by Jesus to put his sword away. And then Jesus said this, Shall not I drink the cup that the Father has given me? And with that, we're going to pick up and read in verses 10 to 27. And, and here's what we're going to see here. We're going to consider the nature of that cup. We're going to spend some time to consider the nature of that cup that the Father gave Jesus to drink. And then when we pick up in verse 12, we're going to see Jesus unjustly tried before the Jewish leaders. And then we're going to see Jesus denied by Peter, who was one of his own disciples. And so, so Jesus is going to be rejected by his own people and his own disciple, and he's going to go to the cross alone as the Lamb of God to drink the cup. That's, that's kind of what I think John is getting at here, because what you'll notice as we read it is, unlike the other Gospels where you'll read Peter's denial of Jesus kind of stands on its own, and they're drawing out different points about that denial. At P John's focus here isn't so much on the fact that Peter denied Jesus, which he did, but what John is trying to communicate by weaving it in, so you'll see he talks about the arrest, then he talks about Peter, then he talks about the interrogation, then he talks about Peter again, the denial. What John is really trying to, I think, communicate to us by weaving that denial in is he's trying to show us that in all of the gospel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world ultimately has to go to the cross alone. He has to go to the cross alone to bear the sin of his people. And that's what he's bringing out, I think, for us, that Jesus was isolated not only from Judas and not only from his own people Israel and not only from the Gentile world, but Jesus actually had to also be isolated even from his most closest trusted disciples because only Jesus can pay the price for sin. And so that's what we're going to see here in this, in this passage. So let's hear God's word read now from John 18, and we will pick up in, we'll start in verse 10 and read through verse 27. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. 
but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you are also, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. What is this cup that Jesus went to drink? The cup that he has in view here is not just <clears throat> the suffering of physical crucifixion and the shame which accompanied it. Sometimes people think about Jesus' suffering and they think about this cup and they think about the horrific realities of crucifixion. One guy named Jeremy Ward, he's head of the physiology department at King's College London, he, he says this about crucifixion. Crucifixion was a method of torture not just putting to death, it was a particularly cruel and unusual form of disposing of people. Crucifixion was one of the most cruel methods of torture ever invented by man. And so the agony of nails piercing through the hands and feet of Jesus, the agony of Jesus experiencing asphyxiation as he lifts himself up to breathe in and out, and the agony of Jesus being bitten with, beaten rather, with whips, with pieces of bone attached to it, uh, that's all part of this cup in a way. And it's a horrific suffering that anyone would have to go through. But the cup which was before Jesus that he had to drink all of it himself is actually much more than that physical suffering. The cup is an Old Testament image of God's wrath 
and judgment. And God's wrath and God's judgment, I don't even know how to explain it in words, but it is infinitely more terrifying than hanging and dying on a cross. Because the hanging and dying on a cross and the being beaten and whipped and having a crown of thorns placed on your head and having nails pierced through your hands and your feet is nothing in compared to the eternal wrath of God. And the reason there are some passages I'm going to read here for you that talk about the cup being God's wrath because we have to understand what Jesus is doing and where he's going. Psalm 75, verses 7 to 8 says, It is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17, and verses 19 to 22 say, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drank it down to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. One more, Ezekiel 23, 31 to 34. You have gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give her a cup into your hand, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. And you can go on and on in the Old Testament, but the point is, is that the cup that is being poured out that Jesus is to drink is this wrath of Almighty God. And the Father gave it to Jesus to drink. And Jesus willingly gave himself to drink it all the way down to the dregs. All the way down. Every last bit of an eternal punishment, the Lord Jesus Christ took it willingly in our place to make atonement for our sin. What would take us an eternal eternity in hell to receive God's wrath, it would take an eternity forever and ever and ever to receive God's wrath. That's how long it would take you and I. We would never exhaust it. It would never be finished. Jesus Christ took it upon himself. Is it any wonder that Luke says that in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus sweat drops of blood? The thought of that even weighed 
on the Son of God. But the love of God in Christ, Jesus understood that if he were to pay for the sins of his elect, if he were to satisfy the judicial anger of God and atone for the sin of believers, then he would have to do it in our place alone. He needs to be our substitute. There's no other way. And that he has to go alone, Isaiah put it like this in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And it says, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Everyone. We've all denied him. We've all rejected God as Lord of our life. We've all found ourselves full of pride and arrogance and self-reliance. And there is not one of us here or one of us in the world that is not guilty of denying and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, not one. We have all turned away and we have all went to our own way and the love of God meant that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so when Jesus came, what we have been seeing in the Gospel of John, and John said in the prologue in chapter 1, verse 11, that he even came to his own people, meaning Israel, and his own people even rejected him. That's what we see here. John tells us here in chapter 18, how these band of soldiers made up of Roman soldiers and Jewish officers arrested Jesus and they bound him. These Roman soldiers merely assisted the Jewish officials at this point and they probably were there to prevent trouble. And after they arrested Jesus with the Jewish officers, they went back to their barracks probably after the arrest and you know this because the Jewish officials were the primary arresting officers. And the way you know that is because after they arrested Jesus, and it was nighttime, they had torches with them. Uh, later, you see, there was a fire that, you know, Peter was warming himself next to. So this is a, a nighttime thing. And after they arrested him, they led him first to a man named Annas. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. This is the one John talked about in John eleven fifty 50, that he would ironically say that it is expedient that one man should die for the people, not believing it, but he, having the high priesthood that year, prophetically announced what Jesus came to do. In any case, they arrest Jesus. Now, initially, as you read this section, you, you may have been a bit confused by the fact that both Annas and Caiaphas are called high priests. I don't know if you noticed that here. Um, in the Mosaic law, the high 
the high priest was appointed for life. But John, in recording this, tells us Caiaphas was high priest in verse 13, and then tells us in verse 19 that Annas, the high priest, questions Jesus, and after he's done questioning Jesus, sends him to Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 24. So that, you might think, oh, that's a little bit confusing. Why is that? So according to uh, historians and what we know from reading is the first century, while Israel was under Roman rule, the high priests were arbitrarily being ousted and appointed by Roman rulers in the first century. It was in a, a position for life, but Roman rulers were just ousting them on their own, like getting rid of this high priest and then pointing that high priest for their own purpose. And so um, John tells us that Caiaphas was, was high priest that year. Annas was high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, and Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, ousted him. And so then there was this, I think, five different family members of Annas that became high priest, and his son-in-law became high priest. So you can see there's all this changing going on in there. And so according to Jews, the true high priest was who? Annas. Annas was the high priest who was appointed, and he was high priest for life. But Annas had become kind of a patriarch of a high priestly family, you might say. And so he's the true high priest, but Caiaphas is the high priest according to the Romans. And so it's no surprise then that when they arrest Jesus, who do the Jewish officials arrest and lead him to? They lead him to Annas, the high priest. He's the guy. He's the one with the influence. He's the one with the power. Caiaphas is appointed by Rome, but Caiaphas really gets even his power from Annas. This is the high priest that they want to bring him to. And so, according to verse 19, Annas interrogates Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So this is taking place in a private residence. This isn't in the formal Sanhedrin. It's, it's in the courtyard of a private residence. And there's these officers and soldiers there, and it's nighttime, and Annas now has Jesus before him. And he questions him about his disciples and his teaching. What those questions were, John doesn't tell us. But maybe they looked at Jesus' followers, his disciples, and they were wondering about the size of his following. And they're wondering if he's trying to create an upheaval and a conspiracy or an uprising. And when it comes to his teachings, they were more than likely questioning him about his theology. Jesus, you're saying you're the Messiah. You're saying you're the Son of God. You're saying that you, that you came to die for the sins of the world, and they're troubled by this theology, and they're troubled by his followers, and they're troubled by the thought that Jesus was going to lead people astray and into apostasy. And they had actually already condemned him in their hearts and minds. They already condemned Jesus and they're worried for their power, and they're worried for their people, and they're worried for their place. 
But Jesus knew that this was no trial to determine the truth regarding these things. This trial was set up for the sole purpose of condemning Jesus as guilty in their eyes. And this comes out when Jesus answers him in verses 20 to 21. Jesus answers him and he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. You know, Jim, simply Jesus is saying, Give me a fair trial. I have hid nothing. I have not been conspiring. I have made open statements in public, the temple, the synagogues, regarding the truth about me, and I have made them for all to hear. If they would go and inquire of the people, they would know that Jesus is not under some kind of conspiracy, but Jesus came to clearly manifest himself. That's what the Gospel of John has been about, isn't it? Jesus came to reveal himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. And he does it through his miracles, and he does it through his teaching, and he does it through his birth, and he does it by the fact that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. He clearly manifests himself as the Son of God and Messiah for the whole world to see. There is nothing hidden about Christ. Even for us here today, what we've seen in God's word and heard in the gospels, Jesus has not hidden himself from you. He has made himself known. But for these Jews, his own people, they refused him and rejected him and put him on trial when they have already condemned him in their hearts. And Jesus sees it. You see, if it was a fair trial, what you do in a trial is you don't bring in the defendant and question the defendant, do you? Who do you bring in and question first before he's even a defendant? You question the witnesses. That's what you do. Oh, did you see the crime? Tell me, did Jesus say this? No, he didn't say that. Oh, did you see what happened? Didn't Jesus do this? And the witnesses would say, no, Jesus didn't do that. And they would go down the list of witnesses because Jesus was public and they'd question all the witnesses and all the witnesses would say, no, none of what you're saying is true about Jesus. He's actually innocent. And so when they finally bring him to trial, you have to wonder, isn't that why in order to condemn Jesus, what are we told in the Gospels? That they bring many what? False witnesses against him. Because no one could bear witness to his sin. Jesus had done nothing wrong. And Jesus is just pointing that out to them. And he's saying, I spoke out in the open. Why don't you go and ask those who have heard me? They will tell you what I said. 
They're not interested in that. They're not interested in that at all. They aren't willing to hear or to accept that truth from this carpenter. And so that's why we read, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. It's an open hand. He slapped and struck the Son of God with the flat part of his hand, and he says to him, is that how you answer the high priest? You see, the truth was clear. And I think this man lashes out in anger because his conscience knows it. He knows what Jesus is saying is true, but he is so committed to rejecting Jesus that he accuses Jesus of speaking ill against the high priest when Jesus had done no such thing. It was absurd on its face. Jesus had nothing to apologize for. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul speaks ill against the high priest in Acts? And he calls him, you whitewashed tomb. It's true that he is. He was a whitewashed tomb. He calls him a hypocrite to his face. And then they tell him, hey, this is the high priest. And the Apostle Paul, thinking about Exodus, you shall not speak evil against one of your rulers. The Apostle Paul actually has to apologize. He doesn't have to, but he does. He apologizes to the high priest. And he didn't say anything wrong, but maybe he was a little bit rude. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't deserve this reaction because Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus simply said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Thick irony. Jesus, the Son of God, innocent, is being arraigned before wicked and unjust judges. Insulted and treated with contempt by those who would one day stand before his judgment seat and receive an eternal sentence. Isn't that ironic? Jesus is the judge, and they and we are judging him. He knew all of this, and yet he condescended to their judgment when he could have simply willed his escape. He could have brought down myriads of angels. He could have walked out that door and been set free. But it was God's will that he would be rejected by his own. That kind of love passes all understanding. J.C. Ryle, who I've quoted often going through this gospel because I just love his book on it, he said this, Jesus was led away captive 
and dragged before the high priest bar, not because he could not help himself, but because he had set his whole heart on saving sinners by bearing their sins, by being treated as a sinner, and by being punished in their stead. He was a willing prisoner that we might be set free. He was, a willing, he was willingly arraigned and condemned that we might be absolved and declared innocent. Amen? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that leads us to Peter. You see, the denial of Peter points to the fact that when Jesus went to the cross, he went alone. This was ordained by God for the Lamb of God. No man was able to bear his own sin. And so even Peter, the leader of the group, the most self-assured and confident, the one who had told Jesus in John 13, 37, do you remember? He said to Jesus, I will do what? I will lay down my life for you. That's confidence. The one that tells Jesus, God forbid that you would go to the cross. I won't stand for it. Peter, strong, confident. Peter, who denied the Lord in this moment. You see, Peter can't follow Jesus unless what happens? unless Jesus dies for him. You and I can't follow Jesus unless Jesus first dies for us. And so here you see that because, because Peter, he buckles. He buckles in the Garden of Gethsemane. He buckles when he goes to this trial of Jesus and then he's confronted and his own sin and weakness appears. We're all prone to wander. You know that hymn, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Take my heart, O oh Lord, and seal it. Seal it in thy courts above because we know we're prone to wander. We're prone to be ashamed of the Savior, even in the lives we live. And if you tell me otherwise, I don't believe you. We're prone to be ashamed. Because Jesus stands up as a bright light, and we know that if we take a stand and we follow Jesus, we know that that means that that light is going to be shining on me, and that means that the world is going to be looking at me. And so we sort of want to hide at times. And we want to distance ourselves from Jesus. 
We kind of want to make Jesus more palatable to the world so it's easier on who? On us. Let's make Jesus easier to deal with so that way I don't have to face as much attraction from him. And I can go through life and I can coast and do my thing. And so Peter here, you see, Jesus knows the disloyalty of our hearts far better than we do. And he knew that Peter was going to falter. He knew he would be scattered and left by all of those disciples. And we, like Peter and the apostles and all who came before them and all who are going to come after us, beloved, we need Jesus to go to the cross and he goes alone to bear our sin for denying him. A humble lesson, but necessary for Peter. But I don't want us to leave on that note because there is an encouraging note here to comfort us as we go home. And it's this, that this Jesus who goes to the cross to die for sinners, he is a loving, faithful, merciful, forgiving high priest, which means that he is willing to forgive us who come to him in repentance and faith, even though we might have denied him at a point in our life when we should have stood for him. John doesn't mention it here, Luke does, but Luke tells us that immediately while Peter was speaking and denying Jesus, the rooster crowed, and Luke tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you, I can't even begin to imagine that. Denying him and Jesus looking at Peter. And why does Jesus look at Peter at that moment? It's not to say, it's not to say, loser. It's not to condemn Peter. It's not to look at Peter and go, shame on you, Peter. Shame on you. You don't deserve me. You don't deserve my forgiveness. Look at you've denied me not just once, Peter. You've denied me three times. Do you think you deserve to be in my presence, Peter? How is God going to forgive you, Peter? You're horrible. You're a sinner. You're wicked. Who does that sound like? That's right. That's the accuser. That's the liar. That's the evil one who puts those kinds of thoughts and words to make Jesus seem like he is not a merciful high priest. To make it seem like Jesus is not willing to forgive because you are so bad. You are so guilty. And Jesus would never wash away your sin. That's not how Jesus looks at him. Jesus looks at him with a glance that's not condemning, but a glance of mercy. He looks at Peter and he's saying, 
Peter, remember, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And I told you, Peter, that when you rise again, you will turn again to me and you will be called to strengthen my, your brothers. It's a glance that says, Peter, it's okay. I'm going to the cross for you to pay for that sin. That's what the glance is. It's a glance that lets Peter know, even though Luke tells us he went out and wept bitterly, it's a glance that tells us that there is good news for grace and restoration to be found in Christ Jesus for Peter. And it means for us, beloved, that there is good news and restoration in Christ to be found for each of us here who place our faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if we will confess our sins before God, and we will confess our denial of the Son of God and the Messiah, then we will receive the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And we are then called to follow him and to serve him. You see, there were two people in John 18 here. We're close with this, okay? Judas and Peter. Both were ashamed. Both were ashamed at their rejection of Jesus. Judas was so ashamed that he gave his money back and then killed himself because his shame was so daunting that Judas didn't know what else he could do and he killed himself. Peter, too, was ashamed, beloved. He wept with great tears Not just a shed tear, but I would imagine it says wept bitterly. I think when Peter left, I I picture him going behind a, a rock and his chest is heaving. And he's his his face is drenched, and he is a watery, sobbing mess of a defeated man. He is ashamed. But what does Peter do? First, what does Christ do? Christ goes to the cross. He pays for Peter's sin. And then he comes back to Peter and he restores him. And Peter, knowing he is a defeated man in humility and love for Jesus, he thanks Jesus and humbly is restored to Christ and follows him. And beloved, that's the same for us. Let us be repentant. Let's repent of our sin. I know you have it. I know it's there. And you know how I know? Because I see it all over me. Christ forgives. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, these are such weighty, weighty chapters, and they are chapters that we often don't want to spend too much time reflecting on because it, it reveals to us so many different things about our own nature and the price that you paid for us. It's not easy for us to hear that you were rejected by your own people, even your closest disciples, and then you were slapped with an open hand for not having done anything wrong. It does make us, Lord Jesus, uncomfortable because we we so much want to honor you and to serve you and we want to do so much for you that sometimes we get carried away in thinking uh, that we have have or can do enough we look at ourselves with the same kind of pride that peter struggled with here we look at ourselves and we think that we have done so many different good things that we have helped so many different people and we have spoken the truth to so many different people and we start to keep lists of how good and righteous we are and we start to think that we will never leave you and forsake you because we are just strong Christians. Oh, Lord, this reminds us that at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, we know that we are nothing without you. We depend on you for every moment of our life. You are our living breath. You are the bread of life that gives us strength. You're the living water who quenches our thirst, and apart from you, we can do nothing. It is you alone, Lord Jesus, who have merited our salvation by your good works. You have done all righteousness and all goodness. You have not left any stone unturned, and you have been perfectly holy in the sight of God. And we know that that's what makes you the perfect sacrifice that you alone could go to the cross and bear and drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf, and you have done that. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for being such a loving and merciful and faithful high priest. Thank you for being so patient with us, for being so willing to forgive us and to Wash us of our sin. Lord, help us to remember these things as we go forth in this week. To remember the price that you paid for us and to remember that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and you have taken away all of our sin as far as the east is from the west so far have you removed it from us. You have made us whiter than snow all because of your work of redemption, and it's because of that that we can come before you this morning in prayer. We confess our sin. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would restore us and you would help us to walk uprightly before you. 
Lord, let not a soul leave this place without confessing their sin before you. May by your spirit, may you cause the hardened heart that is here this morning to repent of their sin and to turn to you to bring and remove the scales from their eyes that their hearts might be softened to repentance, Lord. That is only a work that you can do. And so we ask for your mercy, O God, on each of us here. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that victory. We thank you that we know that what you have promised will come to pass and that just as you died for our sin and rose again, so you will come back to take us home. And we long for that day, Jesus, and we pray that you would return and you would come quickly, Lord, and remove us from this place. We are sojourning through, Lord, and sometimes you know we get tired. And so we ask that you would come and make all things new. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. In your name we pray. Amen.